Hello, and welcome to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show celebrating the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. Today, we look at the third book in the X-Wing series, The Kratos Trap, by Michael Stackpole. But first, let's take a listener question. This one is from Justin, a.k.a. Mr. J on Twitter, at J81Hunt. He asks, If you were given the opportunity to make a Star Wars movie or TV show, which Legends book or series would you choose and why? Well, thank you very much for the question, Justin. I really appreciate it. Now, I'm going to give you two answers. One TV series that I think could last at least eight episodes and a standalone film. But before I answer that, I'm going to impose two rules upon myself. Rule number one, I want these shows or series considered canon. So the legend stories have to fit in the canon since the Disney acquisition. They can't contradict anything. Number two, anything in the ancient past is just too easy. So while a Darth Bane movie or short series would be awesome to see, and I really want it, it's not a challenge to fit it into the canon. So with those rules, this is what I got. First off, I'd make a series based on the old Han Solo adventures by Brian Daly from 1979 to 1980 and the last two books from the A.C. Crispin Han Solo trilogy. Can't use the first book in the Crispin trilogy because it's kind of an origin story, and it would basically contradict everything in Solo, a Star Wars story. So, in the series, we'd see Han and Chewie working as smugglers in the Outer Rim and in the corporate sector running spice, weapons, contraband, whatever. Not only would I have Jabba, but I'd have some of the other Hut clans, other underworld organizations like Black Sun or the Pike Syndicate and Crimson Dawn. And in the corporate sector, Han and Chewie would have to take jobs while dodging the corporate sector security forces. There'd be romance, of course, as I've always imagined Han had quite a few girlfriends between his time with Kira in the Solo movie and when he met Leia in A New Hope. And the series would end with Han dumping his cargo to avoid being arrested by the Empire, Jabba putting a bounty on his head, and Han looking for a job in Mos Eisley to make some quick money. I think this would be a really fun adventure series, and... I'm not the biggest Han guy in the world, but this just sounds really fun to me. Now, for the one-off movie, I went with something a little weird. I like weird Star Wars, so go with me on this one. I'd make a movie loosely based on the book Outbound Flight. Now, I know what most of you are thinking. Outbound Flight isn't that good of a book. I agree, it's not. But I've always thought the idea of a group of Jedi and civilian colonists exploring the unknown regions of the galaxy was an interesting one. They meet the Chiss, they meet a group of aliens called the Vagari, and they eventually go missing. Now this book takes place between the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, so you also have Obi-Wan and Anakin showing up at some point. Maybe they can even work some of the story of the Lost 20 Jedi in there, although that would probably be a stretch. So there you go. 
Justin, I hope I answered your questions. Those are the legend stories I would make into a movie and a TV show. Now, if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, please feel free to contact me. You can email the show at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or tweet me at legendslounge1. Now, let's dive into today's book, X-Wing, The Kratos Trap by Michael Stackpole. It's time to head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The Kratos Trap is the third book of the four-book opening arc of the X-Wing series. The New Republic has taken Coruscant from Isain Isart and the Imperial Remnant, but Isart has left the Rebels a sick world. A pandemic is racing through the planet's non-human population, the Kratos virus. The virus was engineered to hurt the New Republic in two ways. First, if it's diagnosed in the early stages, it can be cured using Bacta treatments. But Bacta is expensive, as the two families that rule the independent planet Thyphera have a monopoly on its production and distribution. Bacta prices have gone through the roof, bringing the new government to the verge of bankruptcy. Secondly, because the virus does not affect humans, the Imperials have sown distrust between non-humans and the human population. As for Rogue Squadron, the pilots are in mourning over the apparent death of Corn Horn. But as we learned in the epilogue of the previous book, Wedge's Gamble, Corn is alive and being held at Lusankia, Isard's secret prison where she tries to brainwash her captives and turn them into sleeper agents to use against the New Republic. The Kratos Trap plays out in three parallel plot lines. The New Republic is dealing with the Kratos virus ravaging through Coruscant, while Imperial agent Curtin Lore wages terrorist attacks across the planet. The trial of Tycho Selchu, Rogue Squadron's former executive officer arrested for treason, and the murder of Corrin Horn, and Corrin's imprisonment and torture at Lusankia. Our story begins at the memorial ceremony for Corrin, which the New Republic uses to celebrate the liberation of Coruscant and condemn Isain Isart for releasing the Kratos virus in the planet's water supply. They also announce the arrest of Tycho Selchu and promise a swift public trial for Corrin's murder. Now, the ceremony doesn't sit well with Wedge Antilles, who believes Corrin wouldn't want to have his death turned into a political spectacle. After the memorial, Wedge confronts the Provincial Council and tries to convince them of Tycho's innocence. Ever since Tycho returned from Lusankia, the New Republic has treated him like a spy without any proof. But General Kraken, the head of New Republic Intelligence, says they do have evidence. Corn Horn reported seeing Tycho with Imperial operatives during Rogue Squadron's insertion into Coruscant. When Corrin confronted him, Tycho denied the meeting. During the invasion of Coruscant, Corrin reported that his fighters' controls weren't responding just before he crashed into a building. A review of security footage and the flight data recorder showed Tycho had laid in Corrin's flight plan. Now, Wedge points out that all of this evidence that Kraken has is circumstantial. It could just as well suggest Isart is framing Tycho as it does to show his guilt. The members of the council agree with Wedge, but they say that's why the trial is necessary, to show the galaxy they aren't the Empire, to allow a tribunal to weigh the evidence 
and determine Tycho's culpability. Meanwhile, in Lusankia, Corrin is put through a series of mind-altering tests. He's drugged and put through flight simulations, first against TIE fighters, then against X-Wings. In the first test, Corrin excels at blasting TIEs, remembering he hates the Empire, though he can't really remember why. The drugs block most of his memories, but enhance his emotional responses, mostly aggression. But in the second test, he's flying against X-Wings, and he can hear their radio transmissions. One of the fighters identifies himself as Tycho Selchu. The other X-Wing pilot is identified as Curtin Lore, Corrin's nemesis. Enraged, Corrin attacks the two X-Wings, but just as he's ready to shoot them down, his mind clears. He realizes this is some sort of trick. He powers down his weapons, stopping the simulation, and is yanked out of the simulator and taken in front of Isard, who promises Corrin his torture has just begun. Meanwhile, the New Republic needs more Bacta to treat the Kratos virus. Prices have skyrocketed on Thyphera, but New Republic intelligence has gotten word that Warlord Zinj is getting a shipment of Bacta delivered to a space station in the Outer Rim. The rogues are tasked with attacking the station and stealing the Bacta shipment. The attack goes rather smoothly for the rogues. Wedge commandeers the freighters carrying the Bacta shipment, putting them under the command of Mirax Tirik, the smuggler operating under a New Republic contract. Together, Mirax and the rogues lead the freighters back to Coruscant. Now, after returning to the planet, Wedge goes to visit Ayala Waseri, a New Republic intelligence agent and Corrin's former partner in the Corellian security forces. When Wedge arrives at Ayala's apartment, he finds her husband Derek has returned. Derek was caught by Imperials when he, Ayala, and Corrin were on the run from the Empire. After they defected from Corsac, Derek was presumed dead but he was found by New Republic intelligence when they were searching the Imperial labs used to create the Kratos virus. Derek and the other human prisoners were used as the labor force in the lab because the virus didn't affect them. Derek's return shocks Wedge, but the conversation eventually leads to Tycho's upcoming trial. Wedge learns Ayala is working with the prosecution, investigating the evidence against Tycho. Now, the trial isn't going well for Tycho, He's being represented by Noara Venn, and his fellow rogue is a little out of his depth. Noara has never tried a case this big before, but after some initial wins by the prosecution, Noara is able to poke some holes in their case. He argues that most of the witness testimony is just too perfect, that it suggests Isart set Tycho up before she fled Coruscant and planned for the New Republic to become distracted with the trial instead of pursuing her. However, much of the witness testimony is damning for Tycho, and unless he can uncover some hard evidence that Tycho did not meet with Imperial operatives or sabotage Korn's fighter, Noara fears the military tribunal is leaning toward conviction. Meanwhile, Mirax contacts Wedge with some very important news. The situation on Thyphera has gotten worse. The Bacta cartels have learned about the New Republic's acquisition of Zinja's Bacta and are threatening to cut off supplies. Plus, a group of Vratex, the native species to Thyphira that manufacture the Bacta, have attacked the cartels. They call themselves the Ashurn Rebels, and they have sent a representative to meet with Wedge in secret. The Vratex want to overthrow the cartel families and have Thyphira join the New Republic, but they need help. As a gesture of goodwill, the Vratix offers to synthesize a batch of Bacta 
that not only cures the Kratos virus, but can wipe the virus out. Corin washes out of Isart's sleeper program. She decides the rogue is just too strong-willed to submit to her brainwashing techniques. Corin is put with the general population of the secret prison, working underground, doing menial tasks. Among the prisoners, Corin finds a number of former rebels from the early days of the Galactic Civil War, including an old man named Jan, who's the de facto leader of the prisoners. Corin asks Jan if anyone has ever escaped from Lusankia. Jan says many have tried, but nobody knows if anyone has been successful. In the lower levels of Coruscant, Curtin Lore and his Imperial agents wage a terror campaign against the New Republic. They hit schools, government offices, and public transportation. But most crucially, they attack back-to-storage facilities and distribution hubs. Sometimes they destroy or contaminate the Bacta, but other times they steal it, causing the price to climb ever higher. Lore then floods the black market with the stolen Bacta, making a fortune to finance the terror campaign. But the heat is on. New Republic security forces continue to close in on Lore's operation, and the New Republic isn't the only one searching for him. Isain Isart has grown wary of the money and power Lore is accumulating, and Lore knows Isart will soon be after him as well, and she'll be more ruthless than the New Republic. It's time to get out, and Lore has an idea on how to escape Coruscant and set himself up for the future. Now deep in the Imperial mine under Lusankia, Corrin plans an escape. However, Corrin is attacked from behind. The guards let the two men fight for a while before moving in to break up the scuffle. Corrin is restrained and thrown to the ground. As he's lying there, he hears something strange. Footsteps. A lot of footsteps. It sounds like a squad of soldiers marching coming from underneath the stony ground. Wedge and the rogues are once again drawn into back to duty. They're tasked with escorting freighters from Ryloth that are bringing Rill to Coruscant. Rill will be used by the Vratix to synthesize the back to vaccine. But when the squadron reaches the rendezvous point, they find the convoy of freighters being attacked by Imperial fighters. The rogues are able to chase off the fighters, but not before all the freighters and the rill is destroyed. It's a terrible blow to the New Republic, but Wedge knows the attack means more than just keeping them from developing a cure for the Kratos virus. It means there's another spy in the New Republic military. When Corrin tells Jan about the footsteps he heard coming from under the cave floor, the old man can't believe it. It makes no sense. But to Corrin, it makes perfect sense. The Empire is using artificial gravity in the prison levels, turning them completely upside down. That's what makes escape so difficult. Prisoners think they're going up toward the surface when they're actually descending further into the planet's depths. Corn decides to test his theory the next day. Jan and a small group of prisoners stage a fight. Now, During the diversion, Corrin takes a small rock and throws it as high as he can toward the cave ceiling nearly 30 meters overhead. Korn's theory is that the cave ceiling is actually the cave floor, that the prisoners are all walking upside down on the cave ceiling without knowing it. But he believes the artificial gravity only works to about the halfway point of the huge cave. And as he watches the stone fly higher, he sees it slow. But instead of returning to him, it hesitates and then accelerates toward the ceiling, coming to rest between a couple of stalactites. Corn smiles. Lusankia 
is upside down. Curtin Lore decides the only way to escape the New Republic and Hussein Isart is to turn state's evidence. He contacts Noir Van and tries to make himself a deal. He'll testify that he has never had contact with Tycho Selchu and turn over encrypted evidence that Isart framed Tycho in order to keep the New Republic busy. In exchange, Lore wants immunity, credits, and safe passage to an independent planet. He also wants to be escorted to the New Republic Judicial Center by Nawara and Ayala Wasiri only. Any more security, and he'll destroy the evidence. As Ayala and Nawara escort Lore through the lower levels of the Judicial Center, they're jumped by a cloaked figure. The assassin shoots Lore in the chest, killing him. He also wounds Nawara in the leg before Ayala can stop the man, shooting him once in the chest and once in the abdomen. Ayala races to the dying man and turns him over. She can't believe it. It's her husband, Derek. Isard turned him, used him as a sleeper to hurt Rogue Squadron. Derek dies in Ayala's arms, thanking her for setting him free from Isard's control. Korn's next escape plan sounds insane. He's going to go down into the dark tunnels of the mine to a locked gate, squeeze through, and then work his way deeper through the guard outpost. But that's not really down, he says. He's actually going up. He descends through the mines, makes it through the gate, and sneaks into the outpost. From there, he finds a corridor that marks where the gravity changes from artificial to normal. Once Korn makes it to the normal side, he ascends through the complex, avoiding the small number of guards. Eventually, Korn stumbles into an office. He searches through files and finds his evaluation that he's not a suitable candidate for the sleeper program. Now, before he shuts down the terminal, he calls up the file on Tycho Selchu and is shocked to find out Tycho was also not deemed a candidate for the sleeper program. This makes no sense. If Tycho is not the spy in Rogue Squadron, then who is? Across the hall from the office, Corrin hides in a library, a small museum with Jedi books and artifacts. Among the artifacts, Corrin finds a bunch of old lightsabers. He takes one and makes his way through a hidden door to an underground speeder. There aren't any controls to the speeder besides an autopilot. Corrin turns it on and waits to find out where the speeder will take him. Following Curtin Lore's assassination, the Imperial terrorist cells on Coruscant shift into overdrive, attacking sites all over the planet. Their main target is a warehouse that is the New Republic's largest back-to-storage area and where intelligence has set up a lab for the Vratics to work on the Kratos vaccine. Wedge and the rogues race through the streets of Coruscant, shooting down Imperial speeders before they reach their targets. Wedge himself takes out the flying bomb aimed at the back-to-warehouse. It's a successful mission, but just as the rogues begin to return to base, they hear something. A ground quake. It sounds huge, and it's getting louder. Now back to the Judicial Center, things are in disarray. Admiral Akbar and the rest of the tribunal meet to discuss how to continue with the trial. Tycho's defense can't continue until Nawara Venn recovers from his blaster wound. But before the court adjourns, Corrin's R2 unit, Whistler, starts going crazy. No one can calm the excited droid down. And just then, Corrin enters the courtroom to everyone's astonishment. He's not dead. Tycho isn't a murderer. 
He's also not a traitor. Corrin's had time to think, and he says he knows who the traitor is. But before he can reveal the traitor's name, the groundquake begins, and on the horizon, something emerges from under the ground. Wedge stares in awe as a superstar destroyer emerges from under the Coruscant ground. Its transponder identifies it as the Lusankia, built prior to the Galactic Civil War beneath Coruscant near the only mountain left on the city planet. The destroyer rips apart over a hundred square kilometers of homes and buildings, killing millions. Once free of the ground, it turns towards space, fleeing the planet. Wedge and Rogue Squadron chase after some of the TIE fighters, hoping to blast some before they dock with the ship. But there's nothing the X-Wings can do against a Super Star Destroyer. Eventually, Wedge calls off the pursuit. But Erisi Delaret follows the TIE she was chasing too close to Lysankia. She's caught in a tractor beam and taken aboard, just as the big ship jumps to hyperspace. The story ends with Wedge and Corrin telling Akbar how Erisi fooled everyone in the New Republic military. She was the spy, not Tycho. Erisi was from one of the two Thyferan families that run the Bacta cartels. The cartels want Thyfera to remain neutral so they can sell Bacta to both sides of the war. When word came that Rogue Squadron was reforming, Erisi's family used their contacts to get her placed in the squadron. From there, she can inform on what the New Republic's plans were concerning Thyfera, the Bacta trade, and the Asheran Rebellion. Isart instructed Erisi to tamper with Corrin's fighter during the invasion of Coruscant, knowing the blame would fall on Tycho. Following Corrin's crash, Wedge had all of the rogue's astromech droids programmed to transmit all flight data to his astromech so he could review the data after every flight. During the Lusankia's escape from Coruscant, Erisi claimed to be caught in a tractor beam, but her astromech droid broadcasts no such thing. Erisi docked with the Star Destroyer on her own and left with Lusankia to Thyfera, where Isart set herself up in power. Wedge and the rogues want to head to Thyfera in pursuit to free the Lusankia prisoners and capture Isart and Erisi, but the request is denied. Thyfera is an independent world. As its rulers, the cartels can place Isard as their leader if they so choose. And the New Republic can't back the Ashen rebels in their revolution. But this doesn't sit well with the rogues. They all resign their commissions on the spot and their places in the New Republic military. They're going to Thyfera to help the Ashen rebels and to bring Isain Isard to justice. Time for a break. When we return, I'll talk about why the Kratos Trap is my favorite of the X-Wing series, even though there are some things in the book that leave me scratching my head. I'm Aaron Motes. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Hey, everybody. Allow me to recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Battlefront Twilight Company by Alexander Freed. Inspired by the video game Star Wars Battlefront, Twilight Company tells the story of the 61st Mobile Infantry as they battle Imperial forces on multiple worlds throughout the Mid-Rim. The fighting is brutal and dirty. The soldiers are cynical and bitter, but ferociously loyal to one another. If you want to see the gritty, 
ugly side of the Galactic Civil War, check it out. That's Battlefront Twilight Company by Alexander Freed. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, talking about X-Wing, The Kratos Trap, by Michael Stackpole. The Kratos Trap is my favorite of the first arc of the X-Wing series, and probably my favorite of all of the ten books in the series. It's got political intrigue, it's got a trial, it's got Corn Horn trying to escape from prison. It really does have everything that I like when it comes to a Star Wars story that doesn't deal with issues of the Force, be it the Jedi or the Sith. Sometimes I like a story that isn't about the Force because, for me, the Star Wars universe is bigger than that. Now, this is probably the third or fourth time that I've read through the X-Wing series, and, you know, going into this reread, of course, I know that Erisi Dalaret is the spy, that Tycho Selchu isn't the spy. But the first, I still remember the first time I read through, it's fairly obvious that Tycho is not the spy in Rogue Squadron. The question, of course, is, who is the spy? Now, I still remember, like I said, the first time I read through, I thought I had figured it out. I thought it was M-Tray, the droid inside of Rogue Squadron, the acquisitions droid. But, of course, it isn't. And when they explain all the things that Erisi Dalaret had done, it makes sense. It makes sense that she's from one of the two families from Thyphera. Broer Jace was from the other family. And while those two families run the back to cartels, there is a rivalry between them. So were they placed in Rogue Squadron as a political move for the New Republic? Yes. I would say it was a smart political move. If Typhara is the only place that you can get Bacta from, you would have to have at least one person there. So at the end of the first book, Broer Jace is called back home to Typhara. At the very beginning of the second book, we learn that Broer Jace was ambushed and killed. All evidence points toward Tycho because Tycho is the one that laid the flight plan for Broer Jace to head back to Typhara. Though... The evidence for that one is pretty thin. Now, the evidence against Tycho when it comes to Corrin's murder is circumstantial, but pretty damning. Corrin and Tycho are seen arguing by other members of Rogue Squadron. Corrin threatens to expose Tycho as the spy. Tycho is seen on camera setting the flight plan into Corrin's fighter prior to the invasion of Coruscant. You know, I can understand why Tycho was taken into custody and why he was being held for trial. But we've all read these types of stories before. When something looks one way, it's never that way. It's always something else. And in the last chapters of the book, when they lay out how Erisi Dalaret had fooled everyone and set all this evidence against Tycho, it really is pretty ingenious. I really like that part of the book. I'm also someone who's a big fan of 
you know, lawyer shows, lawyer movies. I do. I think there's too many out there. Sure. But I'm still a fan of them. I like a lot of the trial scenes in this book. They seem more like actual trial scenes than the scenes you get in movies and television. You know, there are procedural objections that, you know, while most people would see it as boring, I see that as more realistic. And we see from the point of views of both the prosecution and the defense. Commander Hala Etek is assigned the prosecution. She doesn't go into the trial with any preconceived notions whether Tycho is guilty or not. And there are scenes in the book where she is questioning some of the evidence. But she says it's her job to lay out the state's case. And then, of course, there are scenes of Navarra Venn where he's questioning, first off, his credentials and his ability to try such a big, important case. But after that, just how well the defense is doing in the trial. Under cross-examination, Noara gets a couple of witnesses, notably Ayala Wasiri, to put out a little bit of reasonable doubt as to whether or not Tycho is guilty of the crimes in which he's charged. Now, this is not a jury trial. It's seen as a military trial, so it's in front of a military tribunal. So it's a little different than most of the trials you see in movies and television. But I just feel like the scenes of the trial in this book are pretty realistic. And that's what I like about them. Now, like I said, this is my favorite book of this first arc. But there are a couple things that I question. First, the Lusankia, a superstar destroyer buried beneath the bowels of Coruscant. Coruscant is a city planet with trillions of people on it. Not billions, trillions. A superstar destroyer, I believe, is eight kilometers long. I don't remember how many kilometers wide it is, but I'm pretty sure it's eight kilometers long. How do you get it underground? I don't think you can build it and then bury it. Because we know the buildings on Coruscant are built over top of the previous construction on Coruscant. The only way I can think of it is that the Lusankia was built underground. And then that goes to questioning, how do you build a super star destroyer underground? How do you keep the buildings above it from collapsing while you're building it underground. And I understand. I understand what you're thinking. Aaron, this is a space fantasy opera with some science fiction elements in it. And you're absolutely right. But as I said before on the podcast, at least I think I said before on the podcast, as I get older, there are times where my disbelief only goes so far. You know, there are just certain things that even in a fantasy world with space wizards, with laser swords battling bad space wizards that can shoot lightning from their fingers and where ships can travel 
in these nether regions called hyperspace that even the people in the story don't fully understand what hyperspace is, there are still certain things that I just don't really get on board with. And this is one of them. I just can't see any way the Lysankia is underground without somebody knowing. And then there's one other thing that at the very end you learn. And, you know, this is just a small pet peeve of mine, especially when I'm reading a story that has nothing to do with the Jedi and the Sith, how Stackpole relates it to the Jedi and the Sith. And if you don't want to know what that is, you can stop the podcast now. I'll give you a count of three, and then I'll talk about it. Three, two, one. Okay. We learn in the last chapter that Cornhorn is a descendant of a Jedi that was killed in the Clone Wars. The Jedi's name was Nija Halcyon. He was killed, and the member of the Corellian security force that Nija Halcyon was working with married Nija's widow and adopted Nija's young son, Hal Horn. Hal Horn, of course, Corrin Horn's father. So we learned that Corrin is a descendant of a Jedi, and the implication is that these feelings that Corrin gets, mostly bad feelings, when he's in danger, are manifestations of the Force, which they are. I just wish we could have had the entire story without any Jedi influence. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I wish it wasn't there. But regardless, the book still is my favorite of the opening arc of the X-Wing Rogue Squadron books. So, in our next episode, it'll be book four, the back to war, the rogues have resigned their commissions. They're no longer a part of the New Republic military. And they're going to Thyfera to try to bring down Isain Isart and Elise Delaret. It should be fun. Once again, if you would like to get in contact with the show, you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at legendslounge1. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Once again, my name is Aaron Motes. Until next time, remember, there's always a bit of truth in legends.